Hi, this is John LaBelle, host of Visionaries on the Progressive Radio Network, online at prn.fm. Catch us every Monday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. We'll be on for an hour and any time on the PRN archives on Visionaries. We talk to, well, Visionaries, the people who are changing our world. So join me and join the Digital Dialogue every Monday at 10 a.m. Eastern right here on the Progressive Radio Network. Welcome to Visionaries. I'm John LaBelle, your host, and you'll find us here on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. And there's like, what, a half a dozen other ways to catch us on uh, iTunes and a phone number and all that. You can listen on your phone at 424-203-8046. And I'm going to talk about movies today, so please call in. Uh... What do you think should be the canon? I'm always talking to my students. Have you seen this movie or that movie? What movie should they have seen? 888-874-4888. Anyway, we're on at 10 a.m. Eastern time. But since we're global, you'll have to check in your part of the world. I remember once I I was in Bali. And on a Buddhist retreat, and I had some business involvements back home. Which I was exactly halfway around the world because I go to this this gated off path, cyclone fence around it, and a uh, broadcast towers and such. And there was a guy there, and I'd pay him some money. And get to spend, you know, like five minutes on a phone calling New York. And I think I'd call at uh, 9 in the morning and I'd get New York at 9 p.m. <laughs> anyway, uh, who knows what time it is where in the world. You can catch our back shows, including this one shortly, in our archives at visionaries.podbean.com. And be sure to download our app for iPhone and Android. So I want to talk about movies. Not that I know anything about movies. Although I do do a website. Cinemadiscourse.com. Definitely go there. I do it with John David Ebert. And Ebert's written uh, literally two dozen books. And he's uh, maybe discovered a new medium. He's just churning out these podcasts, which are on YouTube, and I highly recommend them. Um, Stuff that maybe some people like me should be reading more, but like I haven't read uh, much. I've never read all of, but I've read a lot of Spengler's Decline of the West, a lot of Joseph Campbell how many people have read Camille Paglia's Sexual Personae? And what Ebert's, one of Ebert's projects at the moment is to take all the books I just mentioned 
and to go through them chapter by chapter, about 20, 20 to 40 minutes on each chapter, explaining what working <laughs> our way through the book so that we can uh, watch a podcast rather than read a book. Anyway, <clears throat> Ebert does, um, does uh, sentiment discourse with me, <clears throat> and both of us have been uh, lax in posting recently, maybe because we're doing these uh, these uh, uh, YouTubes. But anyway, uh, I've had Ebert on several times. Go look up our interviews. I'll have him on in the future. But I was thinking about <clears throat> how, about what culture means to us. And I did a book called Visionary Creativity. And uh, so here's, uh, well, maybe I won't read it. I'll just look at it while I'm describing it. But we store much of ourselves in our culture. So we should not overdo computer analogies about human beings. No, the brain is not a computer. <clears throat> Although it's interesting, if they can get uh, computers to do some of the stuff that brains do or minds do, even if computers do it totally differently, um, you know, that can be interesting. I've described several times about how impressed I was uh, with the update about a year ago of Google Translate. If you want to test it out, take a paragraph in English, <coughs> excuse me, translate it into Chinese, take the Chinese, translate it back to English, and uh, two years ago what you got was gibberish, and starting a year ago, wow, <laughs> it comes back as literature. So <clears throat> something's going on there. Anyway, I make mention in my uh, in the paragraph I'm looking at right now of the movie Blade Runner, the first one, in which the and these androids are created to to work off planet and they're forbidden to come to the Earth and special police hunt them down if they do. And they're programmed to die in their prime. And <laughs> they're teed off about having to die, trying to do something about it. But one of them dies and saying, I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I've watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the Tannhauser Gate. All of these moments will be lost in time, like tears in the rain. Time to die. And then he releases a white dove that carries away his experiences as he dies. The androids have no cultural forms, no art or literature in which to store their memories the way we do. So how do you think about uh, what is culture, what is art, what is art criticism, and um, what's his name? Robert Thurman, uh, who's famous as, well, I won't go into why he's most famous, but he's uh, one of the most prominent American Buddhists and has written quite a few books, and you can catch his lectures online. And I first met him when he was lecturing years ago 
at the, you know, like 30 years ago, at the New York Open Center and enjoyed his lectures. And now, of course, we can catch these things online. He did a book, um, Fima Lakerti, very a translation. He's written a couple of books and done a few translations. His translations of Fima Lakerti is really a joy. Fima Lakerti is a bodhisattva uh, introducing the in Mahayana Buddhism the notion of an enlightened being who doesn't bliss out the top chakra, but rather stays in this world to um, enrich all of us. And interestingly, as I came to understand that concept in my Buddhist studies, and I'm not a very serious Buddhist studier, um, I've been, I'll use that word, dabbling in it for decades. But there are people who can rattle off all the technical terms. I can't do any of that. But I have a feel for certain things. And as I came to understand this notion of the bodhisattva, there was an uh, administrator in my school, and uh, we were doing something together, and I was chatting with him, and he revealed that he was a Catholic monk. And it, something immediately clicked because I heard about this. And I said, are you one of those monks that rather than live in a monastery, you live in everyday reality and do your religious practice in your everyday reality activity? And he said, yes. And so that's very similar to a bodhisattva. So that was interesting. I'm not sure what that's called. I'm not good at remembering concrete stuff, just general principles. Anyway, <clears throat> um, Thurman mentioned a book on Indian or Hindu aesthetics and talked about in Hindu aesthetic theory how they're interested in levels of reverberation. So you see, say, a play. I think this was about uh, theatrical uh, criticism this book, which I, I then got a book about this, which, of course, I didn't read. It's not on, it's not on audio. <laughs> I'm supposed to read this book? Anyway, um, <laughs> unfortunately, I buy more books than I read. So anyway, um, the idea was that you see, say, a play, and there's an immediate experience that you have. Okay, that's one level. But then there's how, you know, how does it reverberate with you? And then think about the real meaning of a work of art, which is at a later time, how are you changed due to that experience you had of that work of art? And so think about all those levels. So... Anyway, something to think about. And in that context, I've been thinking about some movies. So <clears throat> my wife uh, had watched a couple of movies and wanted me to see them. She does. She enjoys seeing them again because of all the things you catch that you didn't catch the first time. And <clears throat> the two movies she had me watch over the weekend were The Wife and Puzzle. So... The wife is going to be 
quite extensively discussed because it's up for Academy Awards, so we'll be hearing about it. And um, it stars uh, Glenn Coase and Jonathan Price and Christian Slater in a eh, not too nice role, but he does it very well. The Wife is a 1917 drama film directed by Bjorn Rouge and written by Jane Anderson based on the novel of the same name by Meg Walzen. It stars Glenn Close, Jonathan Price, Christian Slater, and follows a wife who questions her life choices as she travels to Stockholm with her narcissistic husband who is set to receive the Nobel Prize in Literature. Well, <laughs> should I? Yeah, what the hell? Okay, spoiler alert, turn off the radio <laughs> if you're going to see the wife. But it's in all the reviews of it. It's, it's, uh, I knew about this uh, from having read about it before seeing the film. But what happened, what unfolds is, okay, here they are. He's, uh, you know, he's a, he's a writer, writer. I mean, he just writes. And he's quite successful. So they have a nice house by the sea in Connecticut by the water, maybe it's the sound, uh, <clears throat> depending upon how far out in Connecticut. And they have these, you know, a couple of kids who they bicker with, uh, older kids, uh, the daughter's pregnant, and her brother's a aspiring novelist who's um, not getting along with his father. And <clears throat> they, uh, we see them in their life. And Six o'clock in the morning, they get this phone call from Stockholm. And, you know, is this a joke? No, you really have won the Nobel Prize. So next thing you know, we're on this taking place a few years ago. Um, So we're on a Concorde Concord jet to Europe. So I guess the Nobel Committee is paying for their trip and put them up in a grand hotel in Stockholm <clears throat> and with flashbacks, what unfolds is uh, she's, you know, you can say, well, she's his editor. She's actually written the most of the books. And, you know, maybe he's made some contribution to them. But it's uh, so what does this mean? Um, and this is uh, very much woman's role. So flashes back to 1956 when she's a student at Smith. And he's one of her teachers, and they have an affair. He leaves his wife to uh, marry her. His wife doesn't mind. He says, I'm glad you took him off my hands. He's a jerk. But she uh, is a good writer, and he's our writing teacher uh, at Smith and um, uh, encourages her. But... She they go they move to New York. He gets she gets a job as a uh, as a, an editor at a publishing house, and it's evident that uh, you know uh, you're not going to make it as a woman writer. There's even a scene where when she's a student, a woman writer uh, comes to lecture, and she's quite bitter uh, because. And it doesn't matter how good she is. She's not going to get the recognition the men get, which today is much better, but was really the case in 1956. Think of the days of uh, Norman Mailer and uh, John Updike and Philip Roth. 
<clears throat> and so can't even remember who the women writers were then. And then even, um, I think I've read Marjorie Morningstar. I certainly read uh, The Cane Mutiny by Herman Woke. And, uh, you know, I was also reading Hemingway then, but that was all stuff from the 30s uh, in my high school days. But anyway, um, so it's made clear to her that that she could be a woman writer and she might even get published, but she's not going to get reviewed. She's not going to get read. This writer she runs into who, you know, at a cocktail party after the writer has lectured at Smith uh, is being very bitter, uh, says, take a book from the shelf. There's a row of of uh, of uh, similar bound volumes. She says, now open it. And there's this crack sound. She says, that's a, it's a book by this woman writer. She says, that's the sound of a book that's never been opened before. <laughs> so the books are on a shelf, but nobody reads them. So she uh, sublimates her talent into writing his books. And maybe he does broad outlines, and they go back and forth, but um, you can tell that she's more talented and she's doing the writing. Well, there... Um, what this means to her and what she's going to do about it blows up in the movie. So that's what the movie is about. Interestingly, my wife said, now I want you to see another movie, um, which we did, Puzzle. Puzzle is a 2018 America drama film directed by Mark Turtlebaum and written by Oren Moverman and Polly Mann based on the 2010 Argentine film of the same name. It stars Kelly MacDonald, Irfan Khan, David Denman, uh, etc. And follows a stay-at-home mother who enters a puzzle-building competition. Well, it's puzzle assembly. Um, so, not having, um, not having Glenn Coase... Glenn Close, uh, starring in it, although uh, these are uh, really good actors in Puzzle. Uh, maybe it won't get as much Oscar buzz. Uh, Glenn Close is uh, shortlisted for, you know, Academy Award. Interestingly, she does a great job, uh, but there's a kind of, um, it's not her acting, but the role is is uh, not acrobatic, <laughs> not actorly acrobatic. So, uh, and I was just looking at the New York, Sunday New York Times magazine that had actors that are uh, going to be up for the you know award season, and I just noticed that I hadn't seen very many of the movies, uh, which is typically the case. Uh, not that much into movies, even though I do a movie website. Look it up. Cinema Discourse. Mm. The interesting thing about the movie, I'm sorry, about my website, our website, I do it with uh, John David Ebert. Look him up. Great YouTubes. Anyway, if you are writing, if you're in academia, if you're a student, and you're writing a paper about a movie, a classic movie, look up what uh, 
Ebert or I have to say about it because it really is uh, excellent discussions of what these movies are about. And our approach comes from an informed literary point of view. Uh, I think we even call it movies as literature. Actually, I call it movies as literature. Yeah, Center of Discourse looks at current and classic movies from a literary point of view. We also have top movie reviews, current movie reviews, film ratings, movie blogs, and movie history. So that's our website, to which we have not been paying as much attention as we should. Let me just see. Oh, I looked up a bunch of mine. If you want to see um, my reviews, they're kind of buried in the website. So what you do is you go to, um, there's a search uh, box on Center of Discourse. So just put in Lobel in the search box, and then all my reviews will come up. I'm just looking at uh, one I did for Splice. <clears throat> Splice seems to have faded. I haven't seen it on, um, you know, on TV, uh, a movie I see all the time on TV. I'll talk about it in a minute. I've got it on my list of things to talk about today. Is Lucy um, really favorite? There's certain movies that if they're on, I'll watch it. You know <laughs> that kind of thing. Won't go out of my way to go to uh, what is it on demand or pop in a CD. I pop, there, I will be popping in a CD in the next week for my favorite Christmas movie, which so <laughs> I. Uh, I just got, and my brother-in-law, who's a techie, hooked up a, a, a CD Blu-ray player uh, in the bedroom where we didn't have one because that's where I do a lot of – the bed's my office. And I sit there with my laptop, and that's where I do my work. But um turns out the CD player has all this stuff. It's got Netflix and YouTube and – I, I don't, you know, it's just got all these capabilities. Uh, it shows how much I'm not keeping up. No wonder people are, what do they call it, cutting the cord and <clears throat> getting rid of their $400 a month uh, uh, cable bill. And uh, you still need, uh, you still need uh, internet access. But I guess you can get that for like $40 a month. And as soon as we have G5, uh, you'll be able to get it all on your cell phone. Anyway, um, my favorite Christmas movie is The Thin Man. Uh, Nick and Nora Charles, a, uh, what's the writer's name? Dashiell Hammett. And I'm, I'm kind of uh, from a mystery family. My mother's father was a mystery writer. And... Under a half a dozen pseudonyms, he and Dashiell Hammett uh, and um, uh, what's his name would churn out uh, a bunch of stories every month for Black Cat and Black Mass magazine. I've got a uh, now that it's easy to self-publish a book. I'm going to do. A, I'm going to publish my grandfather's short stories. He also did a novel, which I'll get to. But my grandmother, his wife, uh, kept uh, the cover and his story from the magazine each uh, week or month. I don't know what, what it was. Before my time, Black Cat and Black Mask. So I have them all in a box, and I've got to get them uh, 
I've got to get a offshore typing service or scanning service or something to get them uh, into uh, into manuscript form so I can do them as a book. But uh, at one point, I called up the woman who owned a mystery bookstore in New York. I don't know if that store is still there. But, you know, something like Murder, Inc., maybe that was the store. I don't know if they're still around. But I'm describing to her what I had, and she said, well, if your grandmother had kept the entire magazines, not just the cover in your grandfather's story, uh, you and I could retire. <laughs> Maybe that was an exaggeration. I don't know. But I, I, she didn't, so I can't retire. Here I am, still working, which I really enjoy. Um, uh, great uh, experience teaching. But anyway, so the other movie is Puzzle. Um it's about a a um, repressed housewife. And when is it taking place? I think it's taking place today. And uh, uh, the opening scene, you say, wow, is this late 40s, early 50s uh, in her home? You know, a little, um, maybe it's in Queens, New York, uh, single family tightly packed together, suburban, not suburban, Queens home. And looking at the wallpaper and the woodwork, it's very uh, late 40s. And something like you'd see in a, in a Woody Allen movie when he's showing his family, except they're not screaming at each other. But anyway, they, uh, at one point they say, uh, you still live in your father's house. And you haven't changed anything. So that's why. And so she's very much a housewife. She cooks dinner. Uh, <clears throat> that's what she does. She cooks dinner, uh, maintains the house. Her husband has a garage, which is, we discover, not doing well, but he's working hard. And she has two sons. One's going to go to college, although <laughs> he's got a vegan girlfriend. And uh, she can't eat anything. She says, I'll eat the vegetables. Um, but he decides, we're, rather than go to college, we're going we're gonna to go off to Tibet. Anyway, uh, the other one works in the garage, but is not good at it, not happy about it. So you know, everybody's finding their identity. Well, what she does in her spare time, and is occasionally dinner's late, because she gets wrapped up in it, is puts together puzzles. So, you know, it's uh, her birthday. <clears throat> so she has to bake the birthday cake um, and do the balloons and everything because <laughs> they're all nice, but <laughs> this is one scene where uh, our college-bound, turns out Tibet-bound, son is being um, uh, sitting around and she finally, she's starting to discover herself. So she's hollering at people. So why don't you set the table? He says, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, he had never occurred to him to do that. But it never occurred to her to uh, suggest that he do it. So, every, you know, it's fine. he does it. No problem. But anyway, uh, she gets a thousand-piece puzzle for her birthday from her family. And... It takes her, you know, 15 minutes to put it together, something like that. 
I guess it's longer than that. But she is a whiz at puzzles. It's her natural instinct. So you see this um, the slow unfolding and blossoming of this woman. And remember in uh, Groundhog Day, opening scene, we're at the TV station where Artie McDowell is a producer and Bill Murphy is the weatherman who's a jerk. And uh, they are got the assignment to have to go to Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania to cover Groundhog Day, where Punxsutawney Phil, the groundhog, is either going to see a shadow or not see a shadow, which tells us is spring here or not. Well, they take off in their uh, broadcasting truck. So, you know, it's a van with this antenna stuff on the top, the two of them and their driver, who's also the cameraman. And you see them leaving Pittsburgh, uh, headed for Punxsutawney. And so we see this van going across a bridge. Well, there we are, leaving ordinary reality to a land of fabulous forces. And sure enough, they get to Punxsutawney, and uh, there's a blizzard. All communications are down. They can't get out. And Phil starts having this famous experience where every morning he wakes up, and it's Groundhog Day. And to him, it's, what, is this the fifth time I've done it? To everybody else, it's just Groundhog Day. And he's behaving different each time because, you know, like, didn't I do this yesterday or I'm tired of doing this or how can I, um, uh, you know, what's happened to me or how can I exploit this or this is getting depressing or everybody else is just today, Groundhog Day. So in uh, Puzzle, it's not the puzzle, it's just Puzzle if you're looking it up. My wife always says, go to IMDb, go to IMDb. I always go to Wikipedia because I sort of understand how it's laid out. I don't know where to find, you know, filmography and bio and all that on IMDb. But anyway, obviously you want to be thorough, you do both. And then you can also go look on cinemadiscourse.com. Anyway, um, she uh, decides, you know, I'd like another puzzle like this. And she checks with whoever bought it. I guess, uh, you know, her, some relative bought the puzzle. So uh, she finds out it's a puzzle store in Greenwich Village, New York. And you're like, oh, my God, I haven't been to New York in years. <laughs> she lives in Queens. <laughs> yeah, which is true, apparently, you know, like, what, Eighty percent of people in Queens have never been to Manhattan or something like that. I've been to Queens. <laughs> oh, I, uh, um, it's, you know, I'm thinking I go to Brooklyn every week. You know, to a couple of days a week because I teach there, Pratt Institute, in Brooklyn, New York, <laughs> creative capital of the world. <laughs> I started in 1969. Brooklyn was uh, actually, literally, I moved to uh, 
uh, apartment complex on the water in Manhattan in 76 and uh, with the window of my study looks across the East River at Brooklyn and Queens. <laughs> I, I could sit there and watch the fires every day. Uh, that that was uh, what New York was about. All these uh, brownstones and tenements were being burned down. The uh, what happened was they became worthless as <clears throat> New York was neighborhoods were being burnt out. The city was being abandoned. Uh, neighborhoods were crime ridden, and the owners could get insurance because the federal government said these buildings have tenants. They cannot be without insurance. So there was a federal program to provide insurance. So now the landlord has a motivation to burn down their building. In the meantime, the tenants, if they don't like their apartment, if there's a fire, the welfare department gets them a new apartment. So they, you know, set the mattress on fire and you get a new apartment. Oops. <laughs> we didn't realize that the whole building would burn down. So, uh, and then it was entertainment because this is more in the Bronx that the firemen would come in and people would sit on the rooftops with 22 rifles and shoot at them. So, anyway, my, uh, my father grew up in the Bronx. It was very different. It was the country then. They were a little bit more well-to-do than the people on the Lower East Side in the crowded tenements. So they moved to the country where there were actually undeveloped lots and then fields where kids could play and get fresh air. So he wrote a memoir of that, of things that used to be. And then, you know, I think a childhood, a childhood in the earliest 20th century in the Bronx or something like that. And uh, so look it up, Nathan Lobell, L-O-B-E-L-L, Nathan. Uh, it's on Amazon. I was able to self-publish it, this new great technology. Uh, I remember it was time to do his book. And, and also I had a book, a book on creativity that I wasn't getting a publisher for. So I said, well, how do you self-publish? So I got all these books on how to self-publish. And, you know, you lay it out. And you, you don't want to do it in Microsoft Word. I mean, I had done newsletters. So <clears throat> I, it, those, in the old days, you used, um, used PageMaker. Today you use Quark or InDesign. And, you know, InDesign is sort of taking over. And I was bugged about that because it's really hard to use these programs unless you do them all the time. And I did them all the time. I did about three newsletters, and I laid them out myself. And and I, once in a while, I take a course, and uh, as a refresher. But a while back, I took a course in InDesign, and I, I had nothing to do with it. So I mean, it, there was nothing I was. So yeah, I immediately forgot everything. So <clears throat> uh, anyway, but you don't want to do a Microsoft Word because it really looks amateur. So I'm struggling with all this, and all of a sudden, um, Amazon pops up with CreateSpace. You just submit either your stuff in Word. They'll lay it out very, for a couple hundred bucks. Or uh, it turned out I teach at a design school. So I got someone from school to uh, do the layout. Does a beautiful job. Looks totally professional. 
and you submit two PDFs to Amazon's Create Space, one of the cover and one of the inside, and poof, you know, like a week later, your book is available on every Amazon in the world. <laughs> Amazon.gr in Germany, Amazon.cn in China, whatever. Uh, and it's available on Barnes & Noble. And uh, really cool. So anyway, I did that with my father's book. And I forget the address, but <laughs> his book is uh, Growing Up on Fox Street in the Bronx. And I drove by it whenever I drive up to Connecticut, which I would do because that's where my parents retired to. But uh, I'd say, you know, uh, down there my father lived somewhere. And, you know, hey, let's go look at it. So long after I did my father's book, um, I put the address, uh, whatever, Fox Street, in uh, GPS and bingo, I was there. How do you like that? And it was all burned out when he wrote the book in the, uh, I guess, 80s. And now it's beautiful. Uh, his actual building is a park. that was burnt down or torn down. But there are other buildings across the street that probably are exactly like the one he grew up in. Uh, when I wanted to... all. The when I was trying to get it published, everybody would say, do you have any pictures of his apartment building? And, uh, well, it turned out I could have gotten them. You know, just do the one across the street. I'm sure it's identical. But anyway, I remember when he was still alive, I was uh, trying to get it printed. And I actually got it laid out. A, uh, a graphic designer who I worked with laid it out for me. And... So I had the file, a PDF file, you know, in uh, it was it was in whatever page, PageMaker or Quark. We did a PDF, and to get it printed, yeah, you want to print five hundred or a thousand copies. Otherwise, it's not economical. My father says, I I don't know, five hundred people to to give the book to, and this and that. We never got around to it. So my apologies to my dad. I didn't get to it. Why well, was still alive, but it's done now, and it's on Amazon. Yeah, and it even got a mention in the New York Times. Really cool. But anyway, that's the Bronx, <laughs> which was also burning. To, um, there's uh, uh, when I'm trying to explain to people what the Bronx was like. Um, the, the Paul Newman movie Fort Apache, <laughs> which is a police precinct in the Bronx. Uh, What's all this a digression from? Anyway, these movies. Oh, yeah. So she's um, in um, in Groundhog Day. They go to uh, cross the bridge to a magical realm. Well, she goes into New York, go to this in the puzzle. The housewife uh, goes into New York to... Uh, Agnes goes into New York to buy another puzzle because she enjoyed doing this thousand-piece puzzle. She has to go to a real puzzle store. And so she's on the commuter train going into Manhattan from uh, way out in Queens. And, wow, I think it's Queens. Anywhere, somewhere out in on Long Island. Uh 
I think it's Long Island. Where is it? No, no, no. I'm all wrong. It's uh, north. She's coming in from Metro North because she passes New Rochelle. So anyway, she's, you know, in, in northern Westchester, I guess, living. And she comes into, uh, into Manhattan. So while she's there, she sees a, uh, somebody has posted they're looking for a puzzle partner. And she figures, eh, it's someone who likes to do puzzles, who wants to um, you know, hang out with someone doing puzzles. Somebody got her an iPhone for her birthday, which she has. You know, what am I going to do with this? But um, she realizes she can text this uh, person who put the uh, put up the posting looking for a puzzle partner. So, um, yeah, you know, I like to <clears throat> get out of the house once in a while. She meets the guy. He's Indian, and he was a tech entrepreneur who got really rich. He's got a beautiful house. I mean, there are not very many houses like this in Manhattan. Whoa. Uh, he's got a really nice older house. But he explains to her, no, this is not for, uh, this is not just for hanging out. I'm a competitive puzzle person and I'm entering a major competition and my partner was my wife, and she left me. <laughs> I need a puzzle partner. So uh, they, he says, let me see what you can do. He dumps out a, a puzzle, and uh, he says, wow. <laughs> I've seen a lot of puzzle people. I think you're the best there ever was. Okay, you come in twice a week, we'll train together, and we're going to win this competition. So the movie's about the, her world opening up, and they do this amusing uh, 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 presentation of her erotic opening. There's a painting. Oh, let's see. It's a Goya painting of a nude woman and laying on a chaise with her arms behind her head with her, you know, prominent breasts and so that's one of the puzzles she does so you see her engaging with this puzzle as a uh, an opening of her eroticism and then you see these little things happen you know where um, she starts talking back to her husband and talking back to her kids and uh, she's you know they've never been abusive to her but they've sort of taken her for granted and she's, uh, <laughs> she's no longer being pushed around. So and one more film my, my wife uh, mentioned, but I didn't see, was Peppermint. So Peppermint is a female revenge movie, right? So these bad guys, I, I actually, I think I, I think I found it on... I think I found it online, and I'm not sure I printed it out. But uh, but I did print out female revenge movies. Where do I have that? Anyway, hang on. What do I have here? Um, oh, House of Cards. What's this one? 
Oh, yeah, splice. Anyway, so um, I was trying to think of the brave one because that's sort of, uh, you know, it's by no means the first, but it's sort of the classic uh, grandmother (laughs) of current female revenge movies. So this is uh, uh, the brave one is uh, Jodie Foster, and she's a TV, uh, I think a news producer or something like that, and very, you know, New York, ordinary, has a, a, a boyfriend. They're engaged, I think. They're out in Central Park with their dog, and muggers uh, attack them, put her in a hospital, kill her boyfriend, and steal the dog. So she's totally shaken up, and the police are taking it seriously, but they're not going to do anything. So it's a it's a it's a female Charles Bronson death wish, and uh, so she is totally shaken up. You know, she can't she can't go out because uh, it's going to happen again. She fears. So she goes to a gun store and says, I want to buy a gun. And they say, well, you know, <laughs> you're a law-abiding citizen. You're not a criminal. You can't have a gun. So they said, look, they, uh, you need a license, which is almost impossible to get. You have a waiting period, the whole thing. Says, uh, so the gun store owner realizes her plight and says, is that guy outside the store? Go talk to him. So he says, yeah, you know, uh, I don't remember what it was, 600 bucks, 1000 bucks. Uh, I'll get you an illegal gun, and I'll show you how to use it. And so she gets a gun. And so now, <laughs> you know, it's been a long time. I don't remember the movie. Uh, but I think... Uh, It's a, uh, you know, Charles Bronson starts in Death Wish, starts to go to dangerous, well, the bad guys kill his wife. And so um, after he recovers, he goes to dangerous places and kills the bad guys when they attack him. So I think that's what Jodie Foster is doing. And finally, the the person who attacked her, uh, she encounters him. And I don't remember the details, but basically she hunts him down to his place and uh, kills him, and there's her dog. She says, give me my dog back, blam. (laughs) So these kinds of movies are very satisfying. But anyway, I looked them up. I went to Google, and I said, female, what is it, female revenge movies, something like that. And all kinds of cool movies came up. Um, I remember... I just caught the tail end of um, Columbiana, which my wife has seen a couple of times. She likes it, but I've I haven't seen it all the way through. But the the, the tail end is really cool. She uh, she she does in the bad guys, and then I think it said on Wikipedia there's uh, a sequels in the works, but it's iffy. So uh, our senator. Uh, Christian Gillibrand says this is the 
year of the woman or a time of the woman. So I want to talk about Lucy, but um, uh, we're noticing all these women on these British, these British detective series. And so where was this one? So I look up for British detective series and um, uh, so Father Brown, number one. Wow. So I, I like Father Brown. Uh, we watch this. Sherlock, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch. And, you know, I, it's really cool. I really like it. Uh, I think there's going to be more. I'm not sure he's busy with other stuff now. He's becoming a major figure. But it's a little bit hyper. I mean, you know, Sherlock Holmes, they just can't do it anymore, the real Sherlock Holmes. I, I listen to Sherlock Holmes, the original stories, on um, on audio. But, you know, it's cerebral. You know, the, he'll grab the bad guy, but that's about it. But uh, the movies with, um, who is it, Jude Law and Iron Man. I'm just not good at names. Sorry about that. But they're just hyperkinetic. I mean, it's, it's just, uh, that's not Sherlock Holmes. But anyway, um, the TV series Sherlock. And then, of course, well, a lot of people are elementary fans and... They just got renewed, and it's going to be a change of scene, perhaps. Uh, Midsummer Murders. I have to learn how to use, um, how to get the old ones, because um, that's been going on for decades. Endeavor. So if you're uh, an Inspector Thaw fan with what's-his-name, not remembering, uh, but Endeavor is um, Inspector Morse. I'm sorry, John Thaw was the actor, Inspector Morse. And they, they, should, they should do those, but I haven't seen them. But they do, Endeavor is young Inspector Morse. And then, oh, here's Inspector Morse. And then Inspector Lewis is, uh, remember if you watch Inspector Morse, he had this younger, uh, not as quick as him, you know, the young the young learning assistant was Lewis. Now Lewis has his own series, and he has a younger assistant. A younger assistant's interesting, because um, I think Lewis is, Morse was uh, Oxford, okay, educated. And I think Lewis is educated also, and then his younger assistant is as literate as anybody else. He's read all the classics, but he didn't go to Oxford or Cambridge. Um, let's see. What's in my Agatha Christie's Perot? Eh, too prissy for me. So a uh, uh, point is, a lot of them are coming up with women protagonists. So a uh, big fan of Vera. Just watched one last night. And so Vera's a middle-aged, dumpy female chief of detectives, whatever the whatever that's called in uh, in England. And she uh, uh, and interestingly what these series do, most of them, is something happened 30, 40 years ago. 
And then it ties into something that's happening now. And then something happens now that leads to they find the skeleton or they they find some evidence and which leads them to whatever. And then they very cleverly tie together a crime today with a crime from 40 years ago and they solve it. Well, another one I enjoyed, it, which is which is not renewed, unfortunately, is murder in suburbia. So that's two young women who are detectives, and they're running around having uh, romantic uh, problems, apartment problems, what's what's going on with our boss problems that are really quite enjoyable. But anyway, we see more and more women popping up. There's one, I'm trying to think of her name, where there's a, Farney, something like that. Uh, a woman, private, which, uh, uh, a well-to-do Australian woman who murders come to her doorstep. And then she solves them. And she's always dressed to the nines. There's even a website that sells the clothes from that. So, um, yes, more and more women. Anyway, um, speaking of women, just winding up here. One of the movies that I'll watch whenever it comes on, one of them is Galaxy Quest. Someone will say, you know, what's your favorite movie? And, you know, favorite movie is different from most important movie, right? So I'll always watch Galaxy Quest. I don't know how important that is, but what a hoot. Anyway, a movie that I'll always watch, eh, maybe it's important, time will tell, is Lucy with, um, okay, Lucy is a 2014 English, English language French science fiction action movie written and directed by Luc Besson, produced by his wife, Virgine Besson Celia, for his company Eurocore, shot in Taipei, Paris, and New York City, starring Scarlett Johansson, Morgan Freeman, Chow Ming Silk, and Amir Walken. Walk it. Anyway, so Lucy is a, um, uh, I think she's a student living in Taipei, and she's got a totally worthless boyfriend who's gotten himself into really bad trouble and ropes her in. He, uh, he says, I got to deliver this briefcase. I don't want to go in there. You can do it. Nothing bad will happen. Zip, zip. I'll give you 500 bucks. They gave me a thousand. Um, so wait a minute. If there's nothing to it, why is there a thousand dollars involved? He says, uh, snaps the handcuffs to the briefcase on her wrist. So she has to go in there. Next thing you know. Well, it involves that they are uh, a bunch of drug dealers are surgically embedding. Um, plastic baggies uh, into the abdomens of a half a dozen mules, drug carriers, who are going to fly to different cities uh, around the world and to deliver the drugs, which is this uh, very high-power, bizarre, mysterious new drug. Think of the movie Limitless, um, except he's got a pound of it in you <laughs> as opposed to one pill. And... Uh, 
So bad things happen. She gets kicked in the abdomen. The the stuff breaks loose, and it uh, totally mutates her into this super creature who, as the time clicks along, can use more and more of her brain, giving her a telekinetic, uh, hyper-intelligent powers. So the thing about a movie like that is, okay, uh, that happens— what are they going to do with it? What what you know? What does the world look like to a being who can harness all of the neurons of the Earth into their mind? And uh, uh, movies are usually pretty unimaginative about that, but uh, Lucy does a pretty good job. So there's a topic for next time because we're winding up. So this is John LaBelle. You've been listening to Visionaries. Catch us every Monday at 10 a.m. New York time. Uh, Not sure what time it is in your part of the world at prn.fm. Catch our back shows, including this one shortly, at visionaries.podbean.com. See you next week.